Many of you in here, you live dangerously. And when I'm talking about you living dangerously, here's what you do. You drive when the gas light is on in your car. See, you know exactly who you are. You're like, can I go just a little bit further with the gas that I have? I mean, I know the light's on, but can I go just a little bit further than what I have right now? Now, I know there's others of us in here that your palms are starting to get sweaty just thinking about that. Like, you're like, man, if I got a quarter of a tank of gas, I might run out. So I've got to make sure that I'm always filling up my tank. Wherever who you are or however you kind of fit into those two things, here's the deal. They've done research. And here's what the research has found. Uh, on the low end, if your gas light comes on, this tends to be American cars, um, you will find that you can go about 35 more miles when that light first comes on. On the high end, if you've got a foreign car, some cars will go over 100 miles more when that gas light comes on. And some of you are going to go home today and you're going to test that. <laughs> Don't, because that's dangerous and that is bad for your car. But again, some of us, we kind of enjoy flirting with emptiness. We, we enjoy seeing how far we can go when that gas light comes on. I think most of us in here could probably say that there are days, weeks, months, maybe even years, that we feel overwhelmed. Uh, we feel like our, our gas light is, is on. Uh, we're empty. The, the tank is running dry. We, we've got to commute. We've got our jobs. If you're married, maybe both of you work, and then you're trying to figure out your schedules and, and work, and then you, maybe if you've got kids, you're trying to figure out their schedules, and everything's just kind of running together. You've got bills that you're trying to pay. You've got relationships that are broken. You look around in our world today, and you've got this political scene that's kind of crazy, and so you're looking at that, and you're feeling overwhelmed, or, or maybe we see what's happened weather-wise into our world, uh, the earth itself, over the past couple of weeks, and we're just kind of thinking to ourselves, you've got to put all this together Life is, life is hard. Life is tough. We feel stretched, overwhelmed. And in the end, I think many of us, we run on empty. We look at our life and we think, how can I continue on in my life if I'm always running on empty? And so this morning, we're going we're gonna to focus on that. How do we fill ourselves back up when we're running on empty? If you've been with us over the past few weeks, you know that we're in this series called Greater. We're looking at the story of one of God's prophets, a guy named Elisha. And over the past few weeks, we've been looking at these specific stories about Elisha. We said the first week we talked about burning the plows. Last week we talked about digging ditches. And this week we're talking about a little bit of oil. As we've said in the series, um, especially the first week, we talked about how Elisha was sort of just a normal person. He was a farmer. He, he was pretty average. He was good. And God came into his life and said, hey, I've got greater things for you. And the reality is that for many people who follow Jesus, a lot of times we get to this place where we're like, oh, I'm okay with my life. It's good. It's average. It's normal. And, and I want greater things, but, but I just want to kind of remain stuck where I am. And so this series is all about us moving from good to greater things, whether we're a follower of Christ or not. You guys, we just read this verse a few moments ago from John 14, verse 12. I want to read that again this morning. It says, Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. When we first looked at this verse that first week, I said Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he's having this conversation with them. He's like, guys, you're going to do greater things than me. And I'm sure they rolled their eyes, kind of chuckled, laughed, probably pushed back a little bit. Man, we've seen you do some amazing things, Jesus. 
Jesus is like, well, well, here's the deal. I'm going to be gone. I'm here for a little bit longer, then I'm going to be gone. But what I'm going to do with you is going to be even greater because you're going to be able to tell my story. You're going to be able to talk about me. You're going to tell the stories of, of the teachings that you heard, about the miracles that you saw, how you watched me die, but then how you saw me come back to life. You're going to be able to tell people about this. So you're going to move from this good place you're in to even greater things than me because you're going to point people to Jesus. You're, you're going to point people to eternity with God. And you are going to do greater things. And if you look at that verse, it says, whoever believes in me. It doesn't say, hey, you guys only. It says, whoever believes in me. So if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, you know what I believe God wants for us? To move us from good to greater things. This morning, we're going to look at, again, the story of Elisha. And if you have your Bible, you can turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. We put it up on the screen. You can open up your Journey Church app and follow along there, or you can also take notes on your program. But in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1, here's what it says. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. We are introduced to this widow. Uh, We don't know her name. Jewish tradition says that she was the wife of Obadiah. Uh, Obadiah was a prophet. Uh, You're thinking, I think I know that name. (coughs) You find his book in the Old Testament. But Obadiah was pretty amazing. He would take resources that he had. He was very generous with what he and his family had. He would give that to about 50 prophets. So at any one time, he was supporting about 50 prophets. That's just incredible to me. So as you can imagine, if he's helping these prophets out financially with goods, resources, whatever it may have been, guess who's kind of taking the brunt of that? His family. His family. They're they're destitute. They're hurting. And and to be a prophet wasn't very profitable in that day. See, many times you would anger people because you would tell them the truth. And what would happen is they would chase you. They would try to come find you and take care of you. And so you were usually on the run. So not only are you on the run, but you're trying to make ends meet, you're trying to survive, and then here's somebody like Obadiah who is now giving away so much of what your family has. So here is this widow in our story, probably in her mid-30s. Sadly, her husband has passed away. She has nothing. And what's getting ready to take place is because of this debt her husband has accrued, Creditors are coming to take her two sons to make them slaves. And in that culture, that would have meant about seven years that they would have been gone out of her house, that they would have worked for somebody else to pay off that debt. This is where she is. This is the place that she is living in this moment. She, she has nothing. She is she's stuck. My guess is that she was running on empty in this moment, that her gas tank had no more gas left in it. She was overwhelmed, probably lost all hope. See, she had issues that she was trying to deal with. She had problems going on in her life that were were pretty big. The question for us is how big are our problems? See, I think sometimes we like to look at our problems and say, hey, they're all the same size, but the reality is they're they're not. They come in different sizes. Some of us have small problems. Uh, About a week ago, I had an opportunity to go to a Nats game. It was the Nats Dodgers. It was last Friday night. And... um, it was an organization connected to the church, and they had a couple of tickets. They were inviting all the people from the Northern Virginia area to come and, and be a part of that. They were taking us to dinner. We were going to the game. It was going to be a, a nice, fun time. 
Well, all my plus ones bailed on me, so I had to actually call one of my brother-in-laws, like, hey, I really don't like you, but you're my plus one. Can you go? He's like, sure, no problem. I actually do like him. Uh, he lives up in Leesburg, and I said, here's the deal. I'm going to come up to McLean, to Tyson's. I'm going to meet you at, when you get finished with work, and we're going to drive into the city. We were meeting everybody at 5 p.m. to have dinner before the game started. So we met in Tyson's, picked him up, and we started driving. And, you know, Apple Maps is taking me to where it needs to go. And um, we're getting ready to get on, I think, Roosevelt Bridge right off of 66. And my little cool British lady who's on Apple Maps, she's like, hey, dude, you're making great time. I know you're supposed to be there at 5 p.m. She talks to me like this, okay, not real quick like she probably does in, in your car. But, hey, here's what's going to happen. I got a way that you can save five more minutes. I was already going to be there at 4.55 p.m. My parking spot, the spot here, was right across the street. It was going to take us like four minutes to walk to the Centerfield Gate to get our tickets to hang out with everybody. I was, she said, do you want to you save five more minutes? I don't like being late. It's a struggle. I always like to be on time or a little bit early. I said, heck yeah, British lady, let me go. Five more minutes. Give me those five extra minutes. So I pushed the button, and she says, all right, I want you to get off at Independence Avenue. I thought, we start coming off Independence Avenue. She says, go straight on Independence Avenue. I can't go straight. There's a blockade. Like, I don't know what's going on, but it's blocked. Do not enter. Crawl, you know, biohazard signs, whatever. I mean, it's blocked. I don't know the D.C. roads very well. Now, looking back, I should have gone left when the road was blocked, but I couldn't go left. I didn't think I could, so I turned right. Well, uh, some of you are probably familiar with uh, this, and I don't know how this works in D.C. if it's just rush hour, but... Um, it took me up Rock Creek Parkway. <laughs> I don't even need to finish my story, do I? Some of you know that like in the afternoon, I guess they turn into a four-lane highway. And so I turn right, and I'm in the wrong lanes. I'm like, this isn't good, but everybody else is going that way. I kind of know a part of that area. I'm like, oh, I can turn right up here. Blocked. Next one, blocked. Block, block, block. We keep driving and driving and driving. Finally, at the zoo, I get, off at, <laughs> I get off at Massachusetts Avenue. Friday afternoon, rush hour, trying to go south when the only real southbound road is blocked or going in the opposite direction. I saw Embassy Row. I've never seen that before. That was kind of cool. <laughs> saw a lot of people walking around. People, you know, it's not quite New York City, but it's, not, it's a little crazy out there. We drove through the heart of D.C. at rush hour on a Friday afternoon. At 5.55 p.m., we pulled into our parking spot right across from Nat Stadium. I was a little bit angry at the British lady on Apple Maps. It's like, you should know this stuff. Um, I didn't say any dirty words. Probably thought a couple, repented of those if, if I did. But, um, you know, it's one of those moments you're just like, oh, this is a real issue. It's a real problem. You know what? It was nothing. You know, we wake up in the morning, we drive to work, or we try to catch the train, and we complain about all the people, and we complain about all the traffic. Is that really an issue? Is that really a problem? Not in the big scheme of life. Now, there are people who are really dealing with, with tough things. In fact, in this room right now, I know there are people that are dealing with, with, with hard situations in your life. Your, your marriage is crumbling. The relationships that you have, I mean, they're just, they just torn apart. You're almost at financial ruin. You don't know how you're going to pay your bills in the months to come. And maybe you have a child. Man, you've poured everything into that child, all your love. You, you've taught them how to love Jesus, and yet here they are as adults, and, and they're, they're just kind of saying, that's just not me. And they're doing their own thing. 
Now, we have families here at our church that haven't been able to speak with their families because of the hurricanes that came through. And we think because we have to drive another 10 minutes on a Monday morning that that's the worst thing in the world. No, it's not. There's so many things that people are facing in life that are real problems. You've lost someone close to you, a husband, a wife, a kid, a family member, a friend. Maybe the health issues that you're struggling with right now, the only thing that's going to change that is a miracle of some sort. You know what? Those are real problems. Those are real struggles that people are having in life. We like to say, oh, my life is terrible. No, it probably isn't. See, those are graduate-level problems. A lot of times what we face are really elementary-level problems in life. This mom, she's facing some real pain, some real struggles. But do you notice? She's not complaining. I didn't get five likes on that picture I put on Instagram. She's not upset about anything like that. She's not mad because she put this pithy response down on a Facebook post about some political thing and, and nobody responded to that or didn't change somebody's mind. She's not mad about that. No, she, she's struggling right now because of where she is. Her husband is dead. He's gone. She's in financial ruin. Oh, and by the way, creditors are coming soon to take her two kids so that they can be slaves. You think you have problems and issues? The chances are pretty slim that you have these kind of things going on in your life. But do you notice where she turns? She turns to God. She goes to Elisha, God's prophet, and says, hey, this is what's going on in my life. Look at verse 2. It says, Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Let's stop there for a moment. He doesn't blow her off. He doesn't blow her off in this moment. He says, how can I help you? That's a, that's a big question for anyone to ask. Because how often do we ask people, how can I help you? Somebody tells us they're going through something pretty tough. Our response tends to be, guys, let me fix it for you, right? You know, in our marriages, a lot of times your wife will say, hey, this is what's going on, and this is me. I'll jump in like, hey, honey, let me tell you what to do. Here's the three steps. You do these three steps. You're going to be good to go. That's not a very good answer. I can promise you. She doesn't like that. But we try to fix things. People say, here's what I'm going through. Let me fix this for you. Or here's what I'm going through. This is my favorite. Here's what I'm going through, and it's tough. And then we pull in our story. Are they like the one-uppers? Hey, let me, tell you, let me tell you what happened to me. It has absolutely nothing to do with what this person's going through. But we bring that into the equation because we don't know what to do. We don't know how to respond. You want me to tell you how to respond? Ask the question that Elisha asked. How can I help you? We talk about moving from good to greater things. You want to know how we can make a difference in the world? We ask someone, how can I help you? shouldn't be staff in a church that asks that. It shouldn't be leaders in the church that ask that. It should be the whole church. And when we hear something, our, our hearts are pricked to the moment of saying, hey, that sounds, that sounds rough. How can I help you? It's such a huge question for us to ask. We need to be like Elisha and be willing to ask that question. How can I help you? Back to verse 2. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. I love it because Elisha respects her dignity. He respects who she are. He respects the place that she is in at that moment. He says, how can I help you? And then his next question is, what do you have in your house? What do you have? And how does the widow respond? She says, I have nothing at all. I have nothing at all. It kind of reminds me of um, when you get up in the morning to get ready for work and you go to look in your closet 
and you got like two layers worth of clothes there, and like it's so tight you can't even put your hand in. I mean, this is how many clothes you got, and you start going through it. This is guys and, and girls, okay? This is everybody here. So you, you're in there, and you're looking at this, and what's the first thing you say? I have what? See, you all do it. I have nothing to wear. You could, <laughs> you could clothe the whole village, but I have nothing to wear. We, we say this. So many times we say to ourselves, I have nothing. I don't have this. I don't have this. And so I can't be happy. I don't have this, so I can't continue on. I don't have this, so I can't, I can't go to work today. We like to live in this negative world. So when we're thinking about our lives, when we're thinking about what's happening around us, when, when someone is asking that question, how can I help, we look at ourselves like, I don't know, I, I don't have anything. Or what do you have in your house? I, I got nothing. So many times we miss what's sitting right there in, in front of us. And I, I know what this widow is going through here is, is tough, but she's still breathing. She's still alive. She still has her kids at this moment. I mean, there are things that are good, but you and I, when we're running on empty, first thing we tend to do is to go to the negative things that are there in our life. We, we look at the bad that's there. We, we miss so much that's happening right in front of us. But then what does she say? She says, I have nothing except a small jar of olive oil. Understand that the olive oil was uh, pretty important. And, and I think when Elijah asked this question, he's, he's trying to figure out what can God do? He says, what do you have? And she's like, I got a little olive oil. And I think for, for Elijah, it was more like, ah, we got something. Uh, olive oil was pretty valuable in those days. You could use it for cooking. Uh, which makes sense. You would use it for lamps, which again makes sense. Uh, you would also use it for moisturizer, which doesn't make sense at all. Um, so some of you, I know you go to, what's it, Bath and Beyond? Not Bath and, Bath and Body Works. That's the right place. I haven't been there for, forever, as you can tell. You don't have to go get any more pomegranate splash, okay? You can actually go home today, open up your pants, you're like, oh, we got some olive oil. I think I'll moisturize my face with that. Just don't use the Trader Joe's that has the garlic in it. That might not turn out too well for you. <laughs> It tastes good, but I'm sure it's not good for your face. But anyway, they would use it as moisturizer. They would use it for leather to make leather pliable. They would use it and put it on iron to keep it from rusting. They would use it as an offering to God. They would use it to anoint somebody's head with that oil. She had something, but in her mind, she had nothing. I've got nothing. Well, I've got a little bit of oil here, I guess. God can do a lot with a little. And I think too many times we forget about that. God can do a lot with a little. And if we look at Scripture, we see that over and over. In the Old Testament, we have this young, small, little teenage boy. He can't even wear the, the king's armor. And he goes out and he finds five little stones. And he takes those little stones, this little teenage boy, and he goes out and he defeats this big old problem. He takes down this giant named Goliath. In the New Testament, we have Jesus, and Jesus is hanging out one day, and he's teaching all these people, and it's been a long day, and uh, everything's closed. The restaurants are closed. The markets are closed. These people are like, we didn't bring food for a potluck. What are we going to do? And Jesus tells his disciples, hey, guys, what are we going to do? Like, we'll just send them home. He's just like, no, 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 we got to feed them. Go see what you can find. Find this little boy who comes up, like, I don't have much. I got a couple of fish, a few loaves of bread. And Jesus is like, we got dinner. And so Jesus takes that, and he blesses it, and he begins to pass it out. And as they pass it out, thousands and thousands of people eat until they're full and there's so much food left over that they have 12 baskets left. God can do a lot with a little. And some of us in this room, we have experienced that before in our lives. We've had a little. We've said, all right, God, 
This is all I got. What can you do with it? And God says, well, I can do a lot with a little. We see that in our lives. We see that in Scripture. We see that here. What you and I see as limitations, God sees as opportunities. What we see as things that would hold us back because of the way we think, our finite minds, God looks at that like, whoa, we got a lot that we can do with that one thing. Again, God can do a lot with a little. And if we offer God what we have and trust God at that moment to then give us what we need, God can do a lot with a little. Look at verse 3. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. Elisha's like, here's the deal. You got a little bit of oil? Great. I want your sons to go out, and I want you to go just start knocking on doors. Asking all your neighbors for jars. Now, notice he doesn't say the the specifics of these jars, right? There's no color. There's no size. None of that. He says, just... Just go find any jar that you can. And when you get all those jars, bring them back to your house. Shut the door and then to begin to fill the jars that are there. Begin to fill them. Keep filling them until they're full, until you run out of oil. Look at verse 5. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there is not a jar left then the oil stopped flowing they grab the jars they bring them into the house they shut the door she's like give me a jar they give her a jar she starts pouring this oil in that jar is filled she moves it to the side give me another jar and they just keep doing this and then when all the jars are filled she's like well, we got no more oil she does exactly what elisha tells her to do and what elisha said what happened took place in our story And then look at verse 7. She went and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. Elisha says, all right, you got all these jars now. They're full of oil. You remember what I told you earlier? This is valuable stuff. Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to take all that, and then I want you to sell it. And then once you sell it, I want you to pay off all your husband's debts. But you notice what else he says here? Not just take care of the need that you have, but there's going to be extra. So that you and your sons can now live off of all the extra that God has given you. When this widow finally gave all that she had, what did God do? God gave her all that she needed. When she gave all that she had, when she said, we've got a little olive oil, that's it. God said, okay, now I'm going to give you exactly what you need. Sometimes I think for you and I, there are things that we hold on to that keep us from from fully giving all that we have. There's something in our life. In fact, I have this theory that everybody's got one thing. that you just It's the one thing it's so hard for you to let go of. I don't know what that is for you. You know what it is. But there's that one thing that's so hard for us just to let go of and to finally say, God, all that I have is now yours. And now that I've given you all that I have, (laughs) I know you're going to give me all that you know that I need. To get to that place, I think, though, is hard for us. But we have to be like those jars, fully emptied, 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. I love this word picture here. He talks about these jars of clay. They would have been clay pots, and he's equating these jars of clay to you and I, to, to human beings. He says, hey, here, here you are. You are a jar of clay. Now, if you think about a jar of clay for a moment, um, what's in it? Nothing, right? It doesn't receive its purpose until something is poured into it, and then it can be used. It's the same for you and, and I. We are jars of clay in the eyes of God. And sometimes what we have to do, even when we're running on empty, even when we're overwhelmed, we just got to say, I'm going to give it all. I'm going to let it all go. God, this, this is everything. I, I am an empty jar. Now I need you to fill me up. And you know what I love that God does in those moments? I believe God says, all right, now I'm going to pour my spirit into you. I'm going to fill you up. I'm going to change who you are. Why? So that we can move from good to greater things. So that we can be who God has created you and I to be. So that we can do the things that God intended for you and I to do. But we've got to empty ourselves. We've got to be like those jars of clay. So that like the widow, God can pour God's spirit into each one of us. What are your next steps coming out of this message today? First, I think it's understanding that God's looking for empty jars, and you and I need to be those empty jars. But I think one step that, that some of us need to take is to ask ourselves the question, what do we need to empty ourselves of? Is it anger? Is it guilt? Is it greed? Is it lust? Is it our finances? What is it in your life that you need to empty yourself of? There's something in there we're holding on to. We've got to let that go. What do we need to let go of? And really, that's the next step that we've got to think. The next question we've got to ask, am I offering all I have to God? What are you holding on to? What can you not let go of? What do you struggle with? What, what pain is there? What hurt is there? That you just got to say, God, this is all yours. Again, small problems and big problems. Those big problems that we're facing in our lives, how are we dealing with those? Are we saying, hey, God, here's my marriage. I'm emptying myself to you. I need you to pour into me. Hey, hey God, here are my bills. Here are my finances. I'm pouring myself out now. Now I need you to pour into me. Hey, hey God, this is the, the struggle I'm having this relationship, and I'm pouring it all out, and I need you to pour into me. Hey, hey God, I have lost someone so close to me, someone I love de dearly, and you know what? I... <laughs> It's hard for me to let go of the bitterness and anger towards you, but I'm going to pour myself out to you, and now I need you to pour into me. We've got to be these empty jars of clay so that God can pour his spirit into each one of us. But what are we holding on to? And then lastly, I think there's another group in here, and um, for me, these are people that are followers of Jesus. If God will pour into us, and we've opened ourselves, we poured ourselves out, and God's poured God's spirit into us, then who are we pouring into? I'm afraid too many times when we're followers of Jesus, what we do is like, hey, pour into me, God. Oh, this is kind of nice. And we just kind of hold it. That's not our intention. 
The jar only works when it's been poured into and then it's used for whatever its purpose is. You and I, we only work in where God wants us to work and how we're created to work if we're using what God has poured into us. Which means how are we impacting the world around us? How are we making a difference? Are we asking that question, how can I help? God doesn't pour God's spirit into us just so we can say, look at me. No, God pours God's spirit into us so that we can say, hey, look at Jesus. We're pointing people to Jesus. When we move from good to greater things, man, it means that we are fully empty and God has poured God's spirit into us so that then we can pour into the lives of others. You want to understand God's faithfulness? Then have faith that when we pour ourselves out, that God will pour into us. And only in that moment are we moving from good to greater things. Some of that we'll experience in our life. And other things we'll experience in life to come. And for some of us, we'll never see the fruition of what we're pouring out. But it will happen in generations to come. But when we pour ourselves out and allow God to pour into us, we can pour into our world. And we can be who God created us to be. We can live out our purpose as empty jars of clay. This morning, we get to uh, experience one of those moments with one of our students here. Uh, Evan Becker is going to be baptized this morning. I'm going to call Joe and Evan up here. This is one of those cool things that we get to see. And I love this because this is a, a dad baptizing his son. This is Tammy, his uh, Evan's mom. And um, they're going to go back here in a second. We're going to baptize Evan at the end of our communion time. But, uh, again, this is one of those neat things that we get to experience as a church. So, Evan, I'm going to ask you to repeat after me, all right? I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, my Lord and Savior. All right, that was awesome, dude. You guys can go to the back and all right. They're going to go get Evan ready, but we're going to move into a time of communion this morning, and as we come around these tables, uh, my hope is that you and I will begin to think about what do we need to let go of? What are we holding on to? What do we need to pour out of who we are so that God can, can pour into each one of us? As the band plays, as we sing with them, I'm going to invite you to come up and take a piece of this bread and to take a cup and take it back to your seats and just stand. And I just want us to worship together through this time. And then we'll, we'll take communion together. But as we do that, look at your life. Ask yourself, what are my next steps? And how can I let God begin to pour into the emptiness that I'm feeling in my life right now? Would you stand with me as we sing together, as we take communion?